This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, an autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of Davis's early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soldad Brothers. And from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Those on the right who do not deny COVID's existence tend to subscribe to a certain pandemic fatalism. Nature and or God deals out death when the time comes, and it's simply futile to struggle against what's been fated by forces beyond our control. Or there's the right-wing social Darwinist take that those who die had it coming thanks to pre-existing medical conditions. Meanwhile, for some centrists and liberals, that pre-existing condition is ideological. COVID deaths are imagined as just retribution for those made too ignorant by reactionary politics to get vaccinated, even though, as we will discuss today, the presence or absence of MAGA is by no means the sole determinant of vaccination status. And as this pandemic begins its third year here in the United States, a certain and perhaps more understandable fatalism has creeped into the left, that the conditions of American capitalism and our capitalist state overdetermined that the response to the pandemic would be a horrifically insufficient and inept one. Things simply couldn't have played out otherwise. I do think it's probably true that the United States doing way worse than China and somewhat worse than, say, Canada, was indeed inevitable without some sort of social revolution demanding something different, a social revolution that obviously has not yet taken place. But my guest today, epidemiologist Justin Feldman, argues that the Biden administration has done many, many things very, very wrong that they could have done much better because, by and large, they have done nothing beyond vaccines. Biden's response, Feldman argues, has been shaped by the demand of business to accumulate capital. And the left, he argues, has failed to articulate a public health agenda on the pandemic, leaving the Biden administration's actions largely unchecked and uncritiqued. We have, as usual, a lot of great interviews coming up. Next week is Femi Taiwo guest hosting to interview Dongo Sambasilla and Danielle Gabor on the centrality of monetary policy in colonial and neocolonial domination, particularly in West Africa. Then, Brenna Bandar on the colonial lives of property. Then, Raj Patel and Rupa Maria on Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Veronica Gago on Argentine feminism and neoliberalism from below. And 
Kim Phillips Fine on Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal, and so much more after that. If you depend on The Dig for these in-depth interviews on politics, economics, and history everywhere, then please take a moment to contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. This is overwhelmingly a listener-supported podcast, and the only reason we don't have to paywall our episodes to raise the money required for me to do this as my full-time job, to pay my producer and everyone else who helps on the show, is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. We also, if you contribute at least $10 a month, have books, coffee mugs, and tote bags to send you in the mail, and if you contribute any amount at all, we will send you our weekly, excellent weekly newsletter by email. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. I get an email notification every time we get a new contribution, and it truly does brighten my day. Okay, here is Justin Feldman, a social epidemiologist and research fellow at the Harvard FXB Center. His research focuses on how social inequality harms public health, especially in the context of police violence and the COVID pandemic. I have posted a link to his comprehensive essay assessing Biden's COVID track record in the show notes. Justin Feldman, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. 840,000 Americans or so are recorded as having died from COVID so far, which is surely, of course, a major undercount. But importantly, It's not just right-wing radio hosts ironically perishing after having warned their listeners for months and months against getting the vaccine. You write, quote, age-adjusted COVID mortality rates in the U.S. between August 1st, 2021 and December 4th, 2021 were 30% higher for Black and Latino people, 100% higher for American Indians, Alaska Natives, and 340% higher for Pacific Islanders compared to non-Hispanic whites. Who is dying from COVID right now and why are they dying? Yeah, so I've looked at the data. We have much better data from 2020, the first year of the pandemic. And I was able to look at both uh, race and educational level of, of the people who died. There's no data collected on things we might care about on the left, like social class. That's a bit harder to get at. But We know the highest rates were among working class people of color, specifically, if if we can think of people of color with uh, high school education or less as a working class. And that's largely a result of, in year one at least, of working conditions, so people being exposed on, on the job to coronavirus, and housing conditions. So if at least back then with the the first variant, if somebody in your household had uh, COVID, you had about a 20% chance of also getting it. That's gone up to maybe about 50% chance. And you have these enormous racial and economic divides in, in housing. And yeah, once you get to 2021, vaccination rates obviously now play a huge role in who is dying. Uh, However, vaccination rates between racial groups are pretty similar, yet these unequal conditions of work and housing and unequal health care and inequality in people's health before the pandemic hit, that all hasn't gone away. So the racial inequalities are huge and, and remain. 
the a key divide in housing would be that working class people are far more likely to live in smaller and more crowded housing, and the increased workplace exposure is is pretty obvious. Um, working class people are not as likely to be working remotely. Yeah, and even with within that, the households and workplaces interact with each other. Um, it matters not just what your job is, but what the jobs of your household members are. And despite us hearing so much about personal responsibility, your health is in your hands, uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said back in May, uh, your health is often not in your hands if you think about issues of power and control uh, in, in the workplace and, and in a household the number of people in your household and the jobs they do and the kinds of social control they may have over you uh, is not all in your hands. I don't know. I've heard that under capitalism, your freedom to sell your labor for wages is in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> You've been critical of the Biden administration's framing of the pandemic, I think, starting last July as Delta emerged as a so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated. Why? Is, is it inaccurate? needlessly mean-spirited, counterproductive, or all of the above? All of the above. I think the vaccine, uh, in terms of people's ability to protect themselves, was the best thing to happen in, in the pandemic, developing these, these three vaccines in the U.S. and, and some more globally. Uh, it was probably the worst thing to happen in terms of solidarity, uh, be, between people and thinking about how how we can collectively protect ourselves. So it's not a pandemic of the unvaccinated by any means. And I say that for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is that, and, and I, this, this has become more obvious, particularly as Delta and then the Omicron variants um, weaken the protection of vaccines, particularly protection against infecting people and transmitting to others. So right now, about 30% of people dying and about 30% of people being hospitalized are vaccinated. It's true that vaccinated people with severe outcomes tend to be older, tend to have uh, serious underlying health conditions, or tend to be immunocompromised. So th these two things exist at the same time. One, vaccines work really well to reduce individual risk. But two, vaccinated people are still having severe COVID and are still dying. And that's not even to mention growing research about long COVID, which again, vaccines uh, reduce the risk of, it seems, but do not completely eliminate the risk. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky recently and infamously stated, quote, the overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. And yes, really encouraging news. How does this normalizing the death of people with comorbidities work as pandemic politics? Because it seems like this really weird sleight of hand that aims to downplay the public health crisis of COVID-19 by pointing to the way that it is severely exacerbated by pre-existing public health crises. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on in the statement she made, even more so when you know that it was somewhat edited out of context. Uh, so some anti-vaxxers were latching on to that because it was 
it was actually or or not not anti-vaxxers rather it was people people who were under downplaying the seriousness of of covid um and and saying it only affects those who are quite vulnerable medically beforehand because what was edited out of the statement was that that was a study solely of people who were vaccinated um so that's that's one level. But what I think a lot of people reacted to there, rightly, in my view, I had the same reaction, was that Walensky was asking us to feel reassured that the only people who were dying who were vaccinated had multiple serious underlying health conditions. And basically, we can, in that mentality, we can discount their deaths. Um, there's been, there's been, I, I mean, we, we heard this, I think from, from the right wing a lot more back in 2020, yet some of their talking points have been adopted by the democratic party and by the Biden administration, uh, basically asking us to write off disabled people, people who have other health issues going on because the, their, their deaths would have happened anyway, I think is, is the thinking, or, or perhaps they brought it upon themselves. Um, yeah, it reminds me of, I think it was like the Texas lieutenant governor who early on the, in the pandemic was like, old people like ourselves should be willing to die <laughs> <laughs> and sacrifice ourselves for the economy. <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember that. <laughs> Biden's doubled down on this vaccine-only approach since Omicron's arrival. Is What's the story here? Is this just a simple story about the power of business and American capitalism prevailing over public health and human lives? Not that that's a simple story. That's you know, Marxist account of the past few hundred years. But what about the more particular things about this present political conjuncture, the bare Democratic congressional majority, Republican anti-vax and anti-mask culture wars, resistance from right wing governors? Has that all made it impossible or difficult for Biden to do what should be done? Or are there a lot of things that Biden should have done that he hadn't that we should be blaming him for? Yes, I, I want to um, just warn against this idea that, okay, capitalism is inevitably going to lead to a particular kind of pandemic response uh, that that's going to be quite bad and that's going to universally prior, prioritize business interests over human life. There's some truth to that, but I think we also have to look at other capitalist countries that have done much better than us or somewhat better than us. So certainly Australia is no socialist utopia. Uh, they have done much better than us. And even Canada uh, has maintained less than half the mortality rate over the entire co course of the pandemic versus the U.S. You did have a particular confluence of factors in the U.S. So part of it was these right-wing uh politicians at the state and local level pushing back against what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions. I'll just call them public health measures for- uh, NPIs in yeah. public health parlance. Exactly. Um, and then, yeah, you have this slim Democratic majority in the Senate with a couple of pretty unreliable allies, in, if you can even call them that, in Manchin and Cinema. So- at, yeah, at, at, on the one hand, there were serious uh, political constraints, but uh, I don't think it can all be boiled down to that. There were many what we can call unforced errors, uh, and and I think I'm sure we'll get into this in a bit. But the White House pandemic response has been led by Jeff Zients, who comes from a management consulting and private equity background, and the approach we're seeing has bears all the hallmarks of 
uh, I think what we can call management consulting brain, where everything can be boiled down to simple technical solutions. Yeah, McKinsey, McKinsey and Deloitte are true curses upon the earth. Yeah, Z Zions was known uh, by Rahm Emanuel as one of the so-called McKinsey boys, uh, <laughs> part of part of a small group of private sector folks who came into government starting in the Obama administration. What is this management consultant mindset and how has that shaped the Biden administration's response? I think this is really underlooked in the entirety of the U.S. pandemic response and the pandemic responses of multiple other countries. So you have these management consulting firms. They don't have expertise necessarily in any particular technical area. They are brought in usually by private corporations to come in to make the hard decisions, streamline processes, usually fire people, cut costs, all in the pursuit of short-term profit. And they're like experts at presenting themselves as experts. Exactly, and this—that's their this, area of expertise. <laughs> I think. I think this. Uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg is is maybe the best known person with a history of manage, management consulting. So Jeff Zients got a start at Bain and Company, not to be confused with Bain Capital, uh, <laughs> which which is another like McKinsey, another major management consulting company. But at the same time, you have many different state governments in the U.S. bringing in management consulting companies either to do things like roll out vaccination drives or to even in, in many cases completely come in and restructure the health department to make it run more like a business. And that's often at odds with the goals of public health. So we, we don't care about profit so much as we care about protecting people's health and also thinking about this concept of health equity, where people who, who for re reasons of historical injustice, are suffering the worst in particular health issues and prioritizing those. So I, I remember going to the McKinsey website back when they were running the responses in many states, just looking at the job postings, seeing if they were hiring any epidemiologists. I'm an epidemiologist, uh, and they they were not. Um, they're they're often hiring, you know, Stanford and Harvard grads who are 22, 23 years old. Just before the election, the 2020 election, Biden declared, "quote I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm going to shut down the virus." In retrospect, is it possible to shut down the virus without shutting down the economy? At least periodically and when necessary? And if so, what would an effective shutdown policy have looked like? Yeah, at, at various points in the pandemic, uh, the non-pharmaceutical interventions and PIs that have been most effective involve closing institutions, particularly businesses, also schools, universities, and also restricting some businesses. A, a lot of us probably lived through this, maybe going waiting online to get into the grocery store because they were only allowing a certain number of people in at, at a time. So to do that, you need to massively expand the welfare state. And that's what we did in the US. Uh, we had this policy back in 2020 the CARES Act, and also another another act called the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And it did a lot of things that a lot of us didn't think were possible. It added $600 a week 
to people's unemployment insurance. Uh, in many cases, bringing their wa- bringing their income above what they were making on the job. Uh, it it added a lot of people to the roles of Medicaid and made it very hard to kick them off. Uh, we we froze evictions. Uh, we we did many things, and we had massive unemployment, massive temporary unemployment, due largely due to the closures of non essential businesses. Uh, and there was also funding to keep those businesses afloat. And there has been a lot of research showing that these kinds of interventions work quite well. Now, there there have been times when there's been less uh, coronavirus circulating in society and when people had widespread immunity from infection through vaccination and through prior infection. We are no longer at a point where there's widespread uh, immunity from infection because the Omicron variant is good at escaping immunity. Uh, So whereas prior infection and vaccination can both provide a degree, a strong degree of protection in the case of vaccination from severe outcomes, uh, COVID can still run rampant. And we've not even seen in the U.S., even targeted restrictions around things like closing indoor dining, canceling weddings and other large events that involve hundreds of people maskless indoors. And we've barely even seen a return to mask policies. And with the ideal shutdown, the way to go about shutdowns to have them be intensive, funded, and targeted so that they can accomplish whatever they need to in terms of pandemic control and public health, and then end until they're required again. Yeah. I think it and and it can be up for you know in in a in a functioning democratic society you might have political debates about what the role of these paid shutdowns should be. Um I think at the most modest right now you could think okay there's this huge surge of omicron we are overloading hospitals throughout the country some of them are moving to crisis standards of care which means withholding healthcare from many people and driving healthcare workers into the ground. Uh, I mean, I think I think here in Rhode Island that non-elective that elective surgeries have been postponed. Yeah, and in a lot of places they have, and in some places it's even worse. Uh, they they have triaged care in such a way where even people who urgently need it can't necessarily get it. And we're all so we could have a shutdown in theory that leads whose goals were not overloading hospitals and also buying more people time to get boosters, to get vaccinated in the first place, um, and also to, to increase the supply of the only monoclonal antibody that works against Omicron. And then Pfizer's new drug, uh, Paxlovid, uh, which is a powerful new antiviral. So these drugs are in short supply. So there's really no effective outpatient treatment right now. But if we were to just hold on a bit longer, they would be. But once again, could could Biden have pulled that off? I mean, granted, he has not even tried, but could he have pulled it off given the political balance of power? Or in the best case scenario, this is still a better, much better case scenario than what we have, the scenario that we're currently dealing with. But in that is the best case scenario that we would have seen a blue state shutdown, given the power wielded by state governments and the staunch opposition to any restriction on the economy um, that we've seen since last summer, at least from right wing governors. 
Yeah, there there are real political barriers here, um, and and I don't want to downplay them. And I think you're right. Uh, I think in the best case scenario, what what would have happened is we would continue to have these uh, expanded unemployment policies. We would continue to have uh, funding to keep businesses afloat while they were temporarily closed or restricted, and then we would have guidance from CDC and from White House suggesting, at very least, for governors, mayors, county leaders to implement some level of restriction, perhaps uh, perhaps the degree we saw back in April 2020 couldn't come back, but certainly more than than what we're doing now and instead which is we, nothing we, yeah which which is true truly nothing i think there there might there might be some places where huge events of 5000 10000 people have certain rules attached to them but it's not virtually nothing i i would say and uh from the white house you don't even have support for masking policies really uh we, we've seen you know we we know from reporter's conversation with Phil Scott, the Republican governor of Vermont, who was actually quite good on COVID early on in the pandemic. This governor said that Zions told him not to bring back mask mandates. And they did just that. They didn't bring back mask mandates. I think there are only uh, nine or 10 jurisdictions, if you count DC, in the country that have brought back mask mandates for Omicron, despite pretty widespread public support overall and uh, enormous support among the Democratic voting base for mask mandates. Yeah. So what gives? Why, given that the Democratic Party base overwhelmingly supports mask mandates, is Biden and are Biden and other Democratic elected officials so resistant to them? That is a good question. Uh, I don't have the definitive answer, but I would think about a couple of different things. One is they look at mask mandates and they see it as fueling culture wars and they see it as fueling potential right-wing opposition in the midterm elections, in the 2024 elections. Uh, Another is there's actually a long history of business opposition to mask wearing. You can go all the way back to the San Francisco Anti-Mask League, which emerged during the time of the 1918 uh, Spanish, so-called Spanish uh, flu pandemic. And there was, uh, these were largely bourgeois liberals and small business owners who were opposing the San Francisco mask mandate because they thought that it would signal danger to people, particularly ahead of the holiday shopping season, and would deter them from patronizing businesses. And we've seen that over and over. We see, we see uh, or, or right after 9-11, workers told not to wear masks because it would scare the public. Uh, so there's these pushes to- You, you, mean, wor- you mean workers at Ground Zero? Yeah, Ground Zero mm-hmm. workers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were these pushes to normalize whatever hazard people are living through historically. And I think we're seeing that again. And part of the normalization- uh, the major part of the normalization is this goal to uh, get people back to work, back to shopping. And there were reports from early in this pandemic, I recall nurses and healthcare workers in some hospitals being told not to wear masks because it would freak people out. 
Yes. So that, that was quite early on. Um, and, and there's a couple different levels there. Some were told not to wear uh, any kind of masks. Some were, some were told not to wear higher quality masks, like N95 masks. And yeah, so we, and, and we just saw at the national level. So while some countries have promoted, distributed, even required these higher quality masks like N95s for the general population, we just had CDC decline after considering it to uh, even promote in its non-binding guidelines higher quality mask. Their guidelines have been to wear two fabric masks. I don't know anyone who masks with two fabric masks. Yeah, I, I think they say a, a two-layer fabric mask. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, or at times they have suggested two surgical masks, one on top of the other. The idea is to to improve fit. But fabric masks, they do, they are effective. Don't let me, you know, don't let me uh, dissuade anyone from, from if that's the mask they're going to wear. But they're nowhere near as effective as this other category of so-called high filtration masks. And I, I also want to reiterate or, or bring up rather, there's no shortage of these higher quality masks. Despite the CDC website suggesting there might be a shortage and you might want to save them for healthcare workers. And in fact, the mask, the American mask manufacturer industry has been lobbying the Biden administration since day one, uh, saying it can produce hundreds of millions of N95s in the U.S. per month. Uh, and, and they would like to see large-scale federal buying, but that never happened. And then there was also Fauci early in the pandemic, pandemic telling people that masks weren't necessary when the actual motivation was to reserve a limited supply of masks for healthcare workers, if I remember correctly. What, what happened there, and what did that do to public trust around public health authority? That's been a theme, I think, from Fauci and from others especially Fauci. I, I think uh, he has put out a particular kind of message at times when he wants the public to receive it a certain way. Uh, and in this case, it was he didn't want the public to go out and, and get masks because healthcare workers needed them. At other times, he was saying he was talking about herd immunity thresholds for vaccines, and he estimated they were lower than they actually were because he thought it would give people hope and they would go get vaccinated. Is this paternalism coming out uh, from from uh, federal public health communications saying that we don't need the truth as, as members of the public. Uh, they're just going to give us whatever information they think will lead to the actions they, they want us to take. Does that erode trust? I'm, I'm sure it does. Uh, I also think they've they've even taken a different tack more recently where they're just being pretty vague about what they want us to do. The message is often phrased in terms of personal choice. Walensky has said basically like uh, you can you can use these tools, booster shots, masks, rapid tests. You can use them as you see fit based on your personal individual risk tolerance. So that's, that's not really a public health message per se. I, I think it's a, a lot of the messaging has been about kind of image perception rather than public health goals. It's the neoliberal entrepreneurialization, optimization of the self. You write, quote, where, where pandemic of the unvaccinated was the Biden administration's mantra during the summer of 2021, another phrase has been added in the fall. We have the tools. 
The words were first uttered by Biden in his September 9th speech and later invoked over and over by the CDC, administration officials, and White House allies. Who is the we? You just mentioned some of them, but what are the, what are the tools? And what what is that individualization kind of consumer wrist sort of approach to public health meant to convey and accomplish? This has a long history within public health, particularly starting in the, you know, around the, the neoliberal turn uh, of, of society in general in the late 60s until the 70s and 80s, where basically these functions of public health, which, which have, you know, collectivist and, and leftist histories involving fighting corporations that are polluting, fighting, you know, employers that are, that are exposing workers to hazards. These kind of got pushed away in favor of sort of the, the medicalization of public health. So what kind of healthcare and pharmaceutical treatments do you want, not, not in addition to, but in, in place of public health measures? And also this whole set of, of lifestyle interventions where you as a consumer can decide the kinds of healthy foods you eat, the kinds of exercise you individually tr- decide to choose. So they're, they're really applying that to an infectious disease, which is particularly bad because there is really no plausible way to think about an infectious disease as an individual risk because we transmit it to others and catch it from others. So they're, they're talking about the highlighting, especially these three tools, boosters, masks, and rapid tests, often using their existence as a way to say, we don't need to shut down institutions. We don't need to uh, place restrictions on commerce to achieve public, uh, public health goals. Each individual person can decide which consumer products to purchase, or in the case of the booster, it's decommodified, so you can you know, stop by the, the local CVS and get your booster. And you can lower your risk to a level that they will describe as acceptable, and everything is, is fine. It's like behaviorism, but without even the nudges. Yeah. It's just like, F, it's just like FYI, these things are out there. Yeah, in in some cases, I guess the nudge is like fear of death. <laughs> I don't I don't think they want to nudge you that much, except in the case of boosters. Although with boosters, they really did a poor job of promoting them and distributing them. They did frame them, especially early on, in terms of individual risk tolerance uh, boosters for the general population. That is, and and they really did fail to distribute them even to high risk populations. By mid December, half of nursing home residents did not have boosters. Uh, so, And they're not that keen on you going out and getting rapid tests because there's a shortage of rapid tests. They're not necessarily that keen on you uh, going out and getting masks because of what we just spoke about. Yeah, masks, really bad vibes, seeing people in masks. Returning to lockdowns, was the way that that initial lockdown played out critical in shaping today's politics around lockdowns? Because I feel like I feel like if a competent government in spring 2020 could have orchestrated a lockdown and then made some good use of it, then Americans would be willing to undergo more lockdowns periodically as the virus ebbed and flowed over time. But given today's lack of social trust, lack of trust towards government in the United States of America in the year 2022, do you think that people would comply with a lockdown today? What was the government's failure to make good use of that first lockdown of spring 2020, a real missed opportunity that did irreparable harm? I, I actually think the initial set of NPIs that involved lockdowns or paid shutdowns, I think it 
was pretty effective in many places at bringing down the number of cases, the number of, of deaths. We have, we have research on this. Uh, people generally complied because it was targeted to institutions. And with some, th- there were certainly people who, who slipped through the cracks of the enhanced social safety net, particularly immigrants who didn't necessarily qualify for unemployment. But I think it did a pretty good job. But from very early on, you had narrative uh, na- narratives from politicians and in media saying there's pandemic fatigue, people will no longer comply. By the winter of 2020, going into 2021, where we had this massive surge of cases followed by many deaths, polling data actually showed that uh, Americans supported the closures of non-essential businesses by a two-to-one margin. At the same time, media and politicians were saying that there was no way they could bring these measures back because they were politically untenable. People wouldn't support them. And I counted in in early January 2021, uh, only four states had fully closed indoor dining. Uh, And and not because the other states didn't need to, but because they they didn't want to. And also, a lot of these social supports had, had expired that were originally in the CARES Act. So at this point, as, as we're in winter uh, of, of early 2022, I can't tell you how it would go if a government tried to implement it. We've, we've been subject to a barrage of arguments over the last nearly two years that these measures don't work, they're unacceptable, we don't need them from across the political spectrum. So, and, and you have seen public support drop when you look at opinion polls, though it does depend heavily on on the wording. So I, I can't really answer that. Uh, at very least, I think those of us in public health should proactively be making the case that these are needed and uh, beneficial. And that's not even largely been happening. Obviously, the the first lockdown meant that fewer people died during that period than would have otherwise died by by flattening the curve. But did the government make full use of that lockdown in terms of what could have perhaps inspired more public confidence in terms of like using the moment of the curve being flattened to put in place the sort of measures around contact tracing, say, that could have actually led to a ongoing, sustainable government pandemic suppression strategy? That's a great point. So I th- a lot of the conversation back then was, uh, and back then, a lot of more mainstream politicians and public health scientists who who are more vocal in in media were supportive of the lockdowns as temporary measures, only to put in place until we can build systems that will be better able to do mitigation in the the medium to long term. And yeah, those included things like widespread availability of testing, uh, test, trace, and isolate programs, uh, increasing the ability of the healthcare system to deal with uh, people you know, need, needing to go to the hospital, needing other forms of healthcare, and ultimately the vaccine. So largely we did not build up state capacity to do those things um, somewhat, but definitely not at the level we would have needed. Um, and at the same time, it's a, a dynamic situation. You have an evolving virus which with increasingly more transmissible variants. So by the time Delta rolled around, I'm not sure 
really any level of of tenable state capacity in the U.S. at least would have been able to manage it uh, without restrictions on on businesses. To the extent that there continues to be much of a debate over lockdowns, it's over school reopenings, which we've seen recently reignited with the Omicron surge, of course, and most spectacularly in Chicago, where the Chicago Teachers Union, CTU, had refused to send teachers back into the classroom. What what are the politics of blaming teachers unions right now at this moment when schools are barely functioning, not in most places because teachers are refusing to go in like collectively through their union, but because teachers, staff and students are already out sick in just huge numbers? This is a, a long but important story. Um, or, or I, I, I do think that the advocacy campaign to fully reopen schools is at the vanguard of the entire movement away from public health measures. And I'll just give a sort of a brief summary of its contours. Um, so, so early on, over the summer of 2020, there were right-wing and anti-union organizations that put money into efforts by academics, or by others who are sort of tangentially involved in the world of public health, to um, to say that schools can reopen safely, they should reopen fully. Uh, they did generally support masks, at least at, at that point. Um, and a lot of the arguments that first got tried out in the school reopening debates then got applied to to society writ large. Um, but the, the the main point I'd like to make here is that. I think most of us do understand the value of in-person instruction. Most students, there is some heterogeneity, but most students do a lot better in terms of learning when they have in-person instruction. So it's really a question of how well do the schools protect students? What mitigation measures do they have in place? And can there ever be times when there's such high spread in society that there's a few weeks of shifts to either hybrid learning uh, or fully remote learning? So we've had all of those other options off the table. And what I've seen is an alliance between business interests and largely professional class parents uh, to prevent school closures while at the same time not making demands of minimum mitigation measures. There was no march on Washington for adequately funding surveillance testing. Despite there being a proposal uh, by the Rockefeller Foundation developed in concert with the Biden transmission team on surveillance testing for COVID, there was never enough funding even uh, th- that they even tried to allocate it for it in the American Rescue Plan. Because the the businesses want school reopening are hardline in favor of school reopening because they want workers back on the job, which is hindered by students being at home. Why are PMC parents so much more likely to oppose remote learning than working class parents? Yeah. So what we what we saw and in polling data throughout 2020 uh, and and even into more recent times was particularly white and yeah, PMC uh, parents were the ones who wanted fully in-person school. And often parents of color and lower income parents were uh, were not as enthusiastic about it. Um, and you really had this fairly small fraction of the, the population, those who 
uh, parents who wanted more in-person instruction than they were getting, driving the entire conversation. So I, I think what it comes down to... People with access to Atlantic bylines. Exactly. And, and the Atlantic is owned by the Emerson Collective, which is owned by Lorene Powell Jobs, who is a major funder of charter school causes and anti-teacher union causes. Uh, so not to sound too conspiratorial, but but they, they are all kind of institutionally connected. Uh, but yeah, back at PMC parents, uh, materially, things are quite different for them. They do have different en- interests than working class parents, they were still expected to do their jobs from home rather than having paid furloughs that they could collect unemployment insurance for. Uh, And for many of them, it was difficult, if not impossible, to do their jobs uh, while children were around in in their household. And also having something like a gap in your resume or some, some time for your skills to deteriorate is much more harmful for some a professional class parent, for instance, than than for someone who's working class and might be making more money uh, collecting expanded unemployment than they were on the job. So completely different dynamics. And yeah, so you have this unification of let's reopen. Uh, also, the 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 quality of even just the physical infrastructure of the schools and the school's ability to mitigate COVID spread uh, is quite different in our very segregated, uh, economically and racially segregated school systems. It seems like one of the most damaging and perverse things about how the politics of the pandemic has played out is how the failure of government at the federal and state level to control the pandemic has pushed these terrible trade-offs downward onto cities, school districts, teachers, students, and parents. And so the failure of government at the highest levels and failures of the kind of American capitalist state have increasingly displaced conflict downward into like culture war essentially. Yeah, I mean, you you put it really well. Uh, This is certainly not new uh, in terms of like how the United States deals with various social problems. There's a kicking of the can from the federal to the state, from the state to the local, from the local to the institutional to the individual. That is all playing out here. You're, You're having individual schools or individual school districts having to make really complex choices around what kinds of ventilation to buy, how often to do testing, where to get the tests, mask policies. The CDC put out voluntary guidelines and ha- has, you know, for the entirety of the the Trump and then and then Biden administrations. And they they kind of talk about different levels of protectiveness and they're basically agnostic on which you should choose. And they're really um they so b- combination of not providing Binding uh, funding with binding uh, requirements about what it would be used for in terms of mitigation, plus these sort of vague guidelines, kind of made it inevitable that this would play out in in local contestation of of different kinds of policies. What do we know about COVID in children, and to what extent do you think that the state of that science is being accurately conveyed to the public? I have seen a shift to a degree. At the very beginning, there were debates about whether or not kids uh, could transmit COVID to nearly the same level uh, as adults. 
And there was a downplaying of how much COVID would affect the child's health should, should they become infected. Uh, I think that that first point about transmission has completely gone away, especially as we've got more uh, transmissible variants. But children could were always capable of both infecting others and becoming infected themselves. They may have at points gotten a slight advantage over adults, but that's, that's no longer uh, relevant with especially with Delta and Omicron. Uh, it is true that children are much less likely to be hospitalized or to die than adults uh, from, from COVID. That kind of relative comparison has been used to downplay the absolute risks to children. So in the United States, we've had something like 850 child deaths from COVID. And more than half of them have been since this September. So during this current incomplete school year. On top of that, you have this large current wave of hospitalizations. Uh, you have condition called MISC, which is poorly understood condition of multiple organ systems becoming inflamed. Concerns about long COVID. You don't really want, you know, if, if you have the option, I would say, don't let a child become infected. But in many cases, there are no good options that, that would allow for that to happen. All we have is these, these hand-waving away of, of risks uh, because it's, it's quite inconvenient because uh, there's, there's been no good federal solutions offered to protecting children. Returning to Biden, what was Biden the candidate's critique of the Trump administration's response? Was it more always just promising alongside these calls to follow the science a return to normal? So there, there weren't many specific critiques made, I would say. Uh, one of the specific critiques was about the testing shortages. And more, more generally, uh, I think Biden said that somebody who's allowed 400,000 deaths to happen on their watch shouldn't be allowed to, to be president. Uh, Whoops. Yeah, there, there you go. We're now, we're now past that body count under the Biden administration. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there were critiques around the, the vaccine rollout, which initially was, was pretty slow and not, uh, not well managed. But yeah, there, there was no fundamental difference. Um, oh, yeah. And, and the fo follow the science. Um, <laughs> there's no real fundamental difference in terms of non-pharmaceutical intervention policies. Biden was never saying let's do restrictions on businesses and travel. He was saying, let's do a safe reopening. So let's have these really targeted NPIs that people as individuals can do. So masking, testing. He did talk about occupational health regulation, although that, that kind of uh, fell by the wayside not long after he became president. Um, I want to get to OSHA in a minute, but first, what, what political function did follow the science play under Trump? And why haven't we heard the slogan much since? So Yeah, I think we have this sort of simplistic understanding of the relationship between science and policy that, that many Democrats and liberals held uh, and perhaps still hold during during the Trump administration and prior to it. The idea is that 
There is science about public health and about COVID, and it will tell you the correct policies, and you need to implement those policies of evidence-based policymaking. And what we got under the Trump administration was at times pretty direct interference in what are normally civil service functions of agencies like CDC. So we had efforts to directly intervene from the White House in school COVID safety guidance. You had some interference in this flagship publication of CDC morbidity mortality reports weekly, that sort of thing. And and you just had statements by particularly Trump himself that were not necessarily science-based, like wondering whether, uh, you know, bleach would protect you from from COVID famously. So yeah, Biden promised to do away with that, promised to lead with the science. And I don't think anyone following this closely can claim he has been doing that. We see who is in charge of the response. It is science. Uh, He is setting policy in many cases. And it seems like CDC is often scrambling to provide a post hoc scientific rationale for those policies. The most recent and clearest example of that being the decision to change isolation guidelines from 10 days post-test to five days post-test. And we were told by administration officials that CDC would be releasing a scientific rationale for that move, showing that It wasn't actually too harmful to let people return to work after uh, half the time. And then they walked it back and they said, you know, we're we're not actually going to come up with scientific justification. Uh, And they really did emphasize the need to keep businesses moving. There could be no ex post facto scientific justification for a policy that, in fact, was contrary to the good science and motivated not by science, but by the interests of business. Exactly. I mean, at that point, I mean, Omicron is still new. Uh, when, when that guidance came out, it was even newer. There was very little science, even on the period during which people are most infectious and transmissible. Uh, you had days later, actually, the UK's equivalent of CDC in a blog post kind of doing a clapback saying, you know, people have been asking us whether we're going to follow CDC and, and shorten it to five days. We did some modeling and we find <laughs> somewhere between 10 and 30% of workers would still be contagious when they go back. So so we're not going to do it. Uh, and and C- C- all CDC could do is say, you know, we have some internal modeling. It's based on Delta. We're going to decide whether or not to release it. They ultimately decided not to release it. At some point, are the records of how they came to make that decision going to be made public? And are we going to see that it was made as a result of letters sent by companies like Big Airlines? I don't think we'll ever know <laughs> explicitly. I think we can make a very strong case for that. So a lot a lot of these decisions get made between heads of agencies. They're called interagency memos in the, the parlance of, of FOIA law. They are exempt from freedom of information requests. I assume they'll eventually work their way into the White House archives and some historian will be able to to delve into it. But we have evidence of two things. One, a lobbying campaign by the airline industry to shorten the isolation time. And two, we have uh, an NPR, a very brief NPR interview with Asa Hutchinson, the Republican governor of Arkansas, who basically straight up said, 
hey, uh, we, we governors were worried about businesses closing, and we asked Jeff Zients if he could shorten the isolation time to five days, and he did it, and that's great. <laughs> we're very happy about that. So wow. uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know that you need the the hard evidence there. Uh, we we already have quite a bit. You just mentioned a few minutes back OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and it's an agency that has a lot of power to regulate workplaces for the purposes of safety and health. Though we're about to find out, I think that those powers are limited when the Supreme Court likely strikes down Biden's vaccine mandate, but. The agency was developing regulations on masking, testing, and paid quarantine and isolation last year. But those regulations, we never saw them. They were never promulgated. What was OSHA exploring and what and why and what happened? Back in 1970, Congress gave OSHA very broad authority to regulate workplace health and safety. Uh, And they have a lot of power. That power has been whittled away over the years, both by rules imposed on the agency and by just not funding it enough. There's only uh, at the federal level, 900 something inspectors to cover 22 states. Uh, and then uh, other states have their own their own state plans. It's I, I won't go into the complexities of it, but it's not. It has been jointly strangled by austerity and law and economics. Exactly. <laughs> um So what OSHA tried to do early on at the direction of the White House was develop a protection, what's called an emergency temporary standard against COVID workplace hazards. So SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, transmits in indoor settings, uh, in workplaces particularly. I think we have evidence of a lot of occupational transmission. So they came up with a 700-plus page draft regulation that would have covered a lot of different things. It covered ventilation. It covered when and how to wear masks, record keeping, and, and safety plans. It, most notably, in my view, would have guaranteed paid time off for isolation and quarantine. So if you're sick or you're exposed for workplaces with 10 or more employees, the vast majority of private sector employers in the U.S. would have been covered. And it's true that these things can get struck down in the courts, but that you never know until you try. So what what ended up happening was they were delaying this rule and delaying it. Uh, it, It was under review at the White House. Industry groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce lobbied against it. And then the very same week that CDC said vaccinated people don't have to wear masks anymore, there was a comprehensive shift away from NPIs during that week. And the other thing we saw was uh, this decision to not go ahead with the OSHA rule, to instead come up with a much narrower rule that only applied to healthcare workers. How has Biden been so unprepared for both Delta and then Omicron? I imagine that most epidemiologists understood that variants would be on their way and that there's no way we could know in advance what sort of protection vaccines would offer against those yet-to-be-seen variants. Why do they seem so taken by surprise? I think they are feigning surprise. Um, We had Kamala Harris tell the LA Times that their scientific advisors never made them aware that variants like Delta and Omicron could come into existence. 
some some of those signs. But wouldn't the Delta wouldn't the Delta variant at least, if that were even true, right? suggested <laughs> that variants yeah. were indeed so, coming? Some some of these same scientific advisors, uh, I, I've seen pushback from Celine Gounder from Rick Bright. They said we told them exactly that these kinds of variants could could crop up. What's actually happening is there was no solution to these variants that was politically acceptable to the White House. So they didn't prepare for them, not because they didn't know they were coming, but because they didn't want to alienate business interests, expend political capital to try to prepare for these variants. More specifically, how are we where we are right now with testing two years into the pandemic? You write, quote, Perhaps the only major sustained point of media criticism against the Biden pandemic response has been its mishandling of rapid antigen testing. SARS-CoV-2 is notoriously good at spreading because, among other reasons, transmission often occurs before any symptoms appear. A key purpose of antigen tests is to detect the virus when levels are high enough for transmission during this pre-symptomatic period. In this context, they are best used shortly before social interactions. What is going on? Is this just the result of neoliberal state failure to protect human life, something that encompasses but extends far beyond the Biden administration? Is it the result of deliberate administration decisions or some of both? Because I get where the power of capital dictates things like the CDC's absurd and murderous new guidelines on shortening guidance shortening quarantine recommendations from 10 days to five. But wouldn't a robust and large-scale testing system adequate to the size of the pandemic we're facing be good at ensuring the smoother functioning of the capitalist economy? I don't get it. The ironic thing here is that testing was once promoted as the neoliberal solution to the pandemic. There was uh, a Brookings Institute study simulation or report called Policies for the Second Wave. I think this came out in summer 2020 that basically argued we don't need NPIs that restrict commerce. We can instead have different sets of NPIs that put more of the burden onto individuals yet allow the uh, the economy to function. That, that's how they cast it. What they really mean is to allow capital accumulation to, to go ahead as desired and, and, and normal. Um, so this is really under the category of unforced errors. Uh, I think this is where management consulting brain comes in and just this incredible hubris. They went so far in to a vaccine-only strategy that they did not prepare any kind of contingency plan. What ended up happening was there was a real neglect of approving and producing rapid antigen tests in the first place. Uh, until fairly recently, there were only two uh, FDA-authorized tests. So that led to a limit of supply. And then what happened was uh, CDC said, if you're vaccinated, you essentially never need to test uh, unless perhaps you're very symptomatic, then you can test. That led to a collapse in demands for these antigen tests that did exist. Um, you had Abbott at the time, the main manufacturer of tests, destroy millions 
of tests in a factory in Maine and lay off thousands of workers. And I believe, I could be misremembering that, that that destruction of massive numbers of tests was only ever exposed because many of their workers were African. I think maybe African refugees, I'm not sure from where, who were scandalized by what they were being ordered to do. Yeah. So that have lived in Maine. This is uh, the Somali Somali refugee population of Maine that was largely uh, employed at at this factory. So yeah, they they let the word out. It's true that these tests would have eventually expired six months to a year uh, from them. But by the time Delta rolled around, it would have been good if if they were there. And this is just the failure to have governments ensure demands for these products. And instead of ensuring demands, their own policies created a collapse in demand. So this is just egregious. This is not this is not the the normal functioning of like neoliberal necropolitics or whatever. This is just like complete incompetence. What has the Biden administration done now that the testing crisis has become impossible for them to ignore? Yeah, I I think where we are now is these. The Biden administration realizes it fucked up on the testing. <laughs> they realize that only because they're getting considerable pushback. If they were getting pushback on other issues by media, by unions, by leftists, whatever, maybe they would do better there. But I, I think this real turning point was when the press secretary, Jen Psaki, uh, kind of, kind of joking, <laughs> amazing press kind conference. Kind of jokingly said, "What do you want us to do? Send, send a test to every American?" It was like, <laughs> uh, "Yeah, that'd be great." Uh, so they they are they are now trying to make up for lost time. Uh, so where where they're on a timeline where they really can't offer us very good solutions, and they also continue to refuse to go to Congress for more appropriations uh, for to to buy tests or to subsidize test manufacturers. So they're doing a few narrow things. One is to finally use the Defense Production Act to make some of the raw materials for tests available. Another one is to apparently set up a website where at best you'll be able to get a few tests for free. And another is to use administrative law to require private health insurers to cover, I don't remember exactly how many, I think it was between six and eight reimbursed tests per person. That would only apply to people with private health insurance. It's going to be a cumbersome process that's going to be a nightmare. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online but they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. 
That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. What accounts for the United States' unvaccinated population? Because you push back against an overemphasis on outright politicized resistance as the key factor. You write, quote, who remained unvaccinated by late 2021? While the media often highlights the notable partisan divide in vaccination rates, it's also notable that half of unvaccinated adults didn't vote for Trump. Many did not vote at all. The unvaccinated are largely low-income, uninsured, pregnant, incarcerated, and children, including those under five for whom vaccination has not been authorized. What other factors aside from the obvious right-wing culture war against masks, vaccines, lockdown, everything, what other factors are at play? We've been seeing basically since May uh, of 2021, when vaccines were physically available and authorized for the entire adult population, that immediately led to this framing of uh, basically this argument, rather, that everyone who was unvaccinated did not want to be and were anti-vax. At that point, something like two-thirds of people who remained unvaccinated, of adults who remained unvaccinated, still wanted to be. They were either hadn't gotten around to it yet, they were in this kind of wait-and-see category, make sure it's safe. And that, that population has dwindled over time. There are still probably in the low tens of millions of people out there who are not committed anti-vaxxers who say they are open to being vaccinated and haven't been reached yet. Um, but ba- basically, they're, uh, this grain of truth, it is true that those who are unvaccinated are, if you're Republican, you're more likely to be unvaccinated. Starting from that truth, um, that kind of helps absolve government of their responsibility to do the convincing, to do vaccination, to do vaccine mandates in, in some cases. There's been business opposition to vaccine mandates. You just saw uh, at the Supreme Court a few days ago, the National Federation for Independent Businesses, an industry group, uh, they were the ones who paid for the uh, arguments against, uh, they were the ones who sued the Biden administration. The same entity, I believe, that took the lead against Obamacare's insurance mandate. Yeah, they they purport to represent small businesses, which have more sympathy to the American public. The idea there is that it will interfere with hiring or interfere with the retention of workers. Also, that that rule is not a vaccine mandate. It's vac- vaccinated or test. And it also doesn't apply to small businesses. It applies to 100 or greater. But that, that yeah, that's sort of beside the point. <laughs> There's a there's a very heterogeneous group of who's unvaccinated. The racial gaps in vaccination rates have considerably narrowed, but I can promise you that the 40 to 50 percent of black people who remain unvaccinated didn't all vote Republican. There are lower income people who make up the majority of those who are unvaccinated. Uh, one of the strongest predictors of whether or not someone vaccinated is whether they have health insurance. There are undocumented immigrants or immigrants with other sorts of legal statuses who feel deterred if they have to give over their information to authorities to get vaccinated. Uh, So it's really uh, a heterogeneous group 
one that is amenable to for to a large extent to public health outreach and it's something we need more government effort to take care of it's not just people who are anti-vax and trying to opt out we've talked about biden's pandemic advisors and decision makers but what what is the debate and discussion look like within the broader world of public health and how has the balance of power and the nature of that debate and discussion changed over the course of the pandemic? In the in the world globally, uh, I think there's a much wider range of views that's expressed. Uh, you have other countries where scientists have formed independent organizations to push for measures like restrictions on business, like um, certain regulations on travel, having to test and quarantine people when they travel, for instance. The UK um, has something like that. Yeah, UK has the most prominent group. They're called Independent Sage. The United States does not have any such formation. <laughs> um, some other countries have had quite explicit debates on different pandemic response strategies. COVID zero is something that was discussed before Delta and certainly before Omicron, uh, th this idea of uh, maximal public health intervention if even a single case appears in a society. Uh, that, that was more feasible before these more transmissible variants came about. But you had places like the Irish Parliament discussing whether there should be COVID zero response versus more of a suppression response that, that allows a lower number of cases. The U.S., early on, we did have public health scientists who kind of viewed these shutdown measures as inevitable, important, they quickly backed off, at least the ones who are getting any sort of media attention. And I will tell you that the largest professional association for public health in the US, the American Public Health Association, had its annual conference in person last year. So that, that's about where we are right now. There are certainly dissenting voices. Uh, and I do think your average public health worker or public health scientist wants a far more precautionary approach than the one that state and local and federal government is taking in the US. Uh, but those aren't necessarily the voices being elevated. What about academic public health? And how does that relate to the state government public health infrastructure? There's this sort of disconnected world of academic public health that's getting billions of dollars from the National Institutes of Health per year. And they are largely the ones who are the pundits, who are going on TV, who are writing the op-eds, who are being quoted in media. And they often have are making arguments either in support of the Biden administration's policies or they are pushing the Biden administration to go further in eliminating non-pharmaceutical interventions. There's, they've basically been successful at that. There, there are few NPIs in place anymore. Um, then you have people who are on the ground uh, doing the actual practice of public health, working for state and local health departments, and they have quite a different experience. Uh, these are jobs where they, during the pandemic, have had to work you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. Uh, they don't make nearly enough money. They don't have nearly enough resources. And they see a different side of the reality. They see what it takes to try to propose and implement public health policies. They get virtually no attention from media. And even if they do get attention, they can't really speak freely because they are either 
civil servants, uh, worried about their jobs or political appointees. So uh, it, it, yeah, it leads to this dynamic where really the loudest voices have been those who are funded by some right-wing organizations, uh, right-wing philanthropies who have, have a particular set of policy preferences they want to promote. Or there are people who are invited to these regular White House calls who, you know, I, I spoke to one person who was a public health expert on these regular White House calls who got disinvited because she was too critical of the approach they were taking. So to maintain your access, uh, you kind of have to play ball. And then some of the academic pundits don't even have any sort of public health expertise at all. I'm thinking about my neighbor and yours. Emily Oster. Yeah, I, f I felt like you were trying to get me to talk about Emily Oster. <laughs> <laughs> we are here. We are in Providence. That could that could be its own episode. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think the quintessential example of an academic pundit who has been pushing against NPIs hard from the beginning has been Emily Oster. She is a recipient of funding from various right-wing organizations. Uh, one is the Mercatus Center, funded by the Koch brothers. Uh, or one of, At GMU. Yep. Um, which is like the academic headquarters of neoliberalism it, in the United States. Exactly. It's, it's basically Koch University. Uh, <laughs> another, another funder is um, Peter Thiel's group. I think they're called Emergent Ventures. Another funder is the Arnold Foundation, or Ar sorry, they're now called Arnold Ventures. Uh, and J John Arnold has somewhat idiosyncratic politics, but but definitely in favor of full reopening of economy and, and schools. He's made that much clear uh, in his personal communications. And they are funding, they, they initially funded her to put together something called a national COVID COVID school dashboard. Uh, the idea was in the absence of federal intervention to track COVID transmission and infections in public schools or private schools, she was going to take this right-wing foundation money and do it herself and conduct research on it to be able to guide federal policy. There hasn't been that much research to come out of this initiative. So yeah, she's an economist, not a public health expert. That much is clear, um, but she—I think she knows better than than what she's what she's doing. She has put she has put out some research. I would say it's not of very good quality. Um, she one of her studies was influential in making the case to transition from hybrid to fully in person instruction, um, looking at the difference in case rates between schools that maintain six feet of distancing versus three feet of distancing. I won't go into the statistics, but I have, let's say I have my doubts. Um, but I think even more than that, she's used this funding and this database to establish herself as a national expert on all things COVID, particularly COVID in schools and COVID in children, as a way to express her policy preferences in media, before politicians. And in one case, uh, she was a speaker at an event during, let's say, labor struggles at the in Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union. So she she was on management side talking with the CEO of Chicago Public Schools at an event convened by an anti-teachers union pro-charter school organization there. And we really can't 
overstate the degree to which articles published in The Atlantic in particular appear to have been in shaping liberal establishment responses to the pandemic. Yeah. So her Emily Oster's first major appearance in the COVID debates was an article in The Atlantic entitled Schools Aren't Super Spreaders. Just the framing in itself, uh, the idea that there's something that we can uniquely call a, su- a super spreader. At the time, people were talking about things like meatpacking plants and that schools weren't at that level and therefore implicitly safe. Um, yeah, the, the, the framing was a bit questionable. And we've just seen a barrage of articles in the Atlantic. Um, I do I do want to point out that there are staff science writers, particularly Ed Young, who's very good at the Atlantic, but it's far outweighed by these pundits opining about uh, you know we're we're doing too much to try to prevent a spread of this disease that's killed more than eight hundred thousand people in the U.S. so far. We've touched on this a few times, but the healthcare system is under enormous strain right now. Because even if thanks to vaccines, fewer people need to be intubated in the ICU, healthcare workers are burnt out, quitting, or sick at home in huge numbers. Is a national healthcare system, not just single payer, but public sector delivery of the care too, what we need to solve a staffing problem that the private sector is apparently not capable of solving? And Obviously, given that that's not on the horizon right now, we have had enough trouble trying to win single payer all this time. What what more modest reforms might help? Yeah, so there, there's kind of two questions embedded in, in this, I think. One is more of a short-term question about current staffing while, while the pandemic is raging, while hospital capacity is being exceeded. And I don't think there's any plausible level of staffing that is going to make this Okay. And I do think it's worth thinking about how in other countries where the state has more of a responsibility for providing health care, they have perhaps been more proactive in maintaining a policy goal of keeping transmission levels low enough to not overload their care, uh, their health care systems. Longer term, yeah, we, we are potentially dealing with major issues where not not just people leaving healthcare but people switching into fields that are less inten- sub subspecialties that are less intensive uh, and, and I don't know how you you solve that um, but I, I would highlight both healthcare workers and teachers as uh, as workers who who are leaving and whose uh, whose occupational conditions have substantially deteriorated and and will continue to for the for the coming months and years. So you're saying that deploying national guard troops to clip patient toenails isn't going to cut it. Yeah, I mean in in some places they they've trained national guards as EMTs like that's that's the level of of crisis we're at. Um there was in initiative first mentioned by the Biden administration to hire 100,000 public health workers. They wouldn't have necessarily provided health care, but they would have helped with things like vaccination and testing and contact tracing. And that was in Biden's initial pandemic response strategy unveiled in January of 2021. And it was never even pursued. There was never an attempt to get it through Congress. 
You've criticized the left for not having a response to the pandemic, and I both agree and disagree. The left did mobilize against evictions and around workplace organizing and mutual aid. And then last summer's protest movement against police murder in many ways was a response, if a somewhat incohate one, to the pandemic. And then also, to the extent that the left doesn't have an organized response now, and I, on on public health, in terms of virus suppression and the pandemic as a public health crisis as such, I agree with that. But I don't know that it's limited to the pandemic. The left seems pretty mired in a moment of hopelessness and demobilization, generally speaking. So what do you think the left's failure has been here? And do you think it's a, a failure rather than the left really just getting its ass kicked at the moment? So I, I agree with you. There have been certain kinds of responses, uh, particularly around social supports, which we can think put the ev- eviction moratorium in that category. We can put, uh, if you want to talk about at least strongly worded statements by left-oriented NGOs and Bernie and some other politicians um, about uh, about the expiration of unemployment, like that that happened. I just want I want to make a case that public health has long been at the core of socialist projects. You can go back to Engels's book, uh, Condition of the Working Class in England, published in 1845. That's a book about public health. That's a book about the working conditions, uh, unsafe working conditions, unsanitary housing and living conditions. Um, I think he talks a bit about rural life uh, after enclosures are happening. Uh, And and then also in, in Capital Volume 1, there's a lot about public health, similar sorts of issues in that book. And then some of the uh, socialist revolutions, uh, you can think about Cuba, you can think about China under Mao. Some of the main things that they did at the beginning involved establishing public health programs, having clean water, keep, keeping excrement away from water is a, a huge one, establishing uh, primary care systems that proactively sought out people to try to uh, suppress or, or eliminate diseases. We have lost that uh, in in the current era, especially in the U.S. Uh, and I think, despite everything you mentioned being being real responses to to the current pandemic era, and despite the weaknesses, the very real weaknesses of the left, I think it's inexcusable that there's not even a, a document out there, whether it's, say, a symbolic bill by Bernie or the squad or something, maybe a, a, a DSA policy platform. There's no comprehensive platform about the pandemic response. And I think that would be an important starting point. I'm not, I'm not uh, insisting it would go anywhere, but uh, <laughs> it's necessary but insufficient uh, cause for for uh, something better to to happen. Yeah, why do you think the left and public health have been disarticulated over over time, and what what do you think it would take to rearticulate them? Hard questions. Um, <laughs> I think part of it is the American left, in many ways, is pretty individualistic. We can think about our needs and our and the state meeting those needs. 
but I think it's harder when there are questions that involve collective responsibility, like an infectious disease pandemic. Um, so it's much easier to think about what it would take to give everyone health care after they got sick and more difficult to understand these complex issues around workplace regulation, environmental regulation, um, how, how we should relate to one another to avoid disease spread. It gets, it gets really complex. And I've seen, I've seen among some, some self-identified leftists and socialists attitudes that, that very much mirror uh, sort of the mainstream liberal takes on, on the pandemic, where it is kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be fine. So let's just, let's just get over all of this. I think that one, one idea that is animating a lot of people on the left and is just sort of like ambiently there right now, and you touched on it a bit earlier, I think, is the sense that we were doomed with this pandemic because this country's response was entirely overdetermined by the state of American capitalism and the state of the American capitalist state. And so I think there's a sense that regardless of who is in office, regardless of particular decisions they made, that this was inevitable. Do you, do you agree that a, a sense of fatalism is at work? I think there's a sense of fatalism, but I also think there's a kind of amnesia. I think people literally don't remember that the government paid unemployed workers $600 plus standard unemployment insurance to stay home. I don't think they they know that people can pretty easily get on Medicaid right now and it's hard to kick them off. Uh, there were a lot of, there was a state of exception. It was fairly short-lived uh, and, and we could talk about why that might be. Um, but things that were never imaginable happened and they happened under a Republican president um, and they happened a with pretty, enormous bipartisan support. Uh, pretty under a pretty bad guy <laughs> yeah under a, under a really bad guy and i think he's positioned himself to if he runs in 2024 to run to the left of biden on covid response should, should those be the candidates uh not not in a genuine way but he he can say hey i gave you money i gave you this generous unemployment insurance i gave you mandatory paid sick days, which only expired at the end of 2021. Uh, and most of those policies were either partially restored or not restored at all. And at this point, uh, as, as we're headed into a new year, uh, virtually none of them are in place. One thing that could be huge but that we haven't seen is the politicization of COVID deaths and people mobilizing to fight back against a system that has essentially and is essentially continuing to murder their loved ones. And what I'm thinking here, of course, is something like ACT UP. Why do you think we haven't really seen anything like that? Because the particular way that AIDS was harming gay men at that time was part, of course, of how AIDS was ignored by the government and the medical establishment and allowed to kill so many gay men. But at the same time, the particular way that AIDS was harming a stigmatized and marginalized group of people, gay men, also allowed for a sense of collective identity and then organizing against the death that was being imposed on them. And today we see enormous numbers of people dying. And though it is disproportionate 
in a number of ways, as we talked about at the top of the interview, that are classed and raced, amongst other things, it is also killing a rather heterogeneous slice of Americans. And there doesn't seem to be, at least not yet, collective political identity that can be formed around these deaths to fight back against them. Yeah. There are a lot of issues that that sort of militate against an act-up-like formation. Um, uh, some of those that you mentioned, there are not there are not really people out there who identify as person with COVID. Um, th- there's there's not uh, if you combine this sort of individualism pandemic of the unvaccinated narrative, which was extraordinarily powerful, with the idea that the people who get sick are either temporarily sick or or die quite quickly. Um, the only thing we have that looks anything like uh, a COVID-based identity to organize around has to do with people with long COVID. And they are organizing to a degree, but they are encountering the same issue that people with chronic diseases, especially poorly understood chronic diseases, face, which is being dismissed because of the the lack of scientific certainty about what exactly long COVID is and how many people it affects. That can all be kind of hand waved away, and and they're also disproportionately women, the w- people who who uh, report these long term COVID symptoms, and certainly people who are getting involved in these support groups and organizing groups. So so yeah, it's it's a, it's a real uphill battle. I also think you want to think about interest convergence. So. ACT UP's greatest success, I think, in terms of policy, was changing FDA approval processes to get drugs uh, fast-tracked when there was no good HIV or AIDS drugs. Um, So there was this interest convergence between people with HIV, AIDS, and the pharmaceutical industry and their desire to have fewer regulations or more streamlined regulations. Uh, you don't have that same kind of interest convergence in COVID. Uh, you, you have a set of public health interventions that are very much opposed. They're very much not in the interests of business. Uh, you, you can maybe think of a, a few uh, exceptions, and perhaps as new treatments, therapeutics like antivirals become available, we'll see different kinds of, of organizing around that. But yeah, at our current place, it's pretty hard. How do you think people should balance their individual responsibilities to their own health and to public health with the reality that public health needs to be managed by government and government is failing at every level? Given this failure of national and global governance, how should people deal with this absurd situation of making individual and social risk assessments on an individual and family basis? It's an impossible question. <laughs> we've we've been we've been put in a situation where I'm asking there are for often... permission to dine indoors. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're 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 in a situation with no good options. Uh, you you can say that okay, uh, I'm willing to. I, I understand my risk. I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I have no uh, serious health conditions. I am willing to you know 
assume some more risk as a consumer. It's, it's usually framed around consumer choice. Who do you live with? What risk level do they have? Who else do you interact with? What kind of workers do you interact with? So all this risk is relational. I don't have a great answer, but I, I would like to highlight that like you can see the same space like a restaurant and you can see it from the perspective of a consumer who doesn't want to have their freedom to dine restricted or you can see the very same workplace, uh, sorry, very same institution as a workplace, as uh, and you can be a restaurant worker who wants the freedom to not be infected by COVID through either occupational health regulation or temporarily shutting down the work uh, the workplace and and sending you home. So yeah, a, a lot of times we don't even have the power to make the choice, and when we do have the power. Uh, they're not necessarily good good options. And I, I do think this is where a lot of the left gets turned off because it's very easy for this to sound like anti-freedom. We want to we want people to to cower in their homes all the time and to to avoid infection. And um, we're not letting them live their lives. Uh, there's kind of civil libertarian arguments. There's kind of like anti-puritanical arguments uh, that 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 I've heard. Uh, but yeah, I think it's ignoring how power operates in a lot of these cases. Uh, but yeah, I, I I can't give very good answers. I I personally am not doing indoor dining uh, during the peak of the Omicron wave, and we'll reassess in a few weeks, perhaps. Last May. The Biden administration finally relented and agreed to push the WTO to waive intellectual property protections for COVID vaccines. But as far as I can tell, and it's pretty much dropped out of the news, even with the Omicron variant bursting out of South Africa, as far as I can tell, nothing has happened on that front in terms of the intellectual property protections or in terms of what needs to follow after that, which is actually ensuring that vaccines can be manufactured and distributed worldwide. What, what's the state of play as you understand it? Yeah. So back back in the beginning, before there were vaccines, uh, a, a group of Global South countries came together to produce a policy platform, basically saying they wanted uh, not just sharing of intellectual property for the vaccines, but also a concerted technology transfer program where people from Global North countries that were manufacturing vaccines would go down to countries with pharmaceutical capacity like Brazil, South Africa, et cetera, uh, and help them figure out how to, how to make these things. Not much has happened. Certainly that has not happened. Uh, there, there were rumblings, like you said, about this TRIPS waiver in the World Health Organization. Uh, there were re- that requires the agreements of multiple countries. Um, I think Germany, Canada were not very much in in favor of that. There is also this idea that the Biden administration could pursue uh, legal options for the Moderna vaccine specifically because some of the technology developed by the National Institutes of Health was used in the Moderna vaccine. None of these things have really been pushed on very hard by the uh, Biden administration. They haven't prioritized it. Um, and nothing has happened. Yeah, they push back against Moderna just shamelessly trying to kick the FDA off of its mRNA patent, but they haven't suggested that they're going to do anything with their patent rights. <laughs> exactly, and and you have uh, first the New York Times, then some some NGOs looking into because a, a talking point by the vaccine manufacturers and by 
prominent pundits who are allied with vaccine manufacturers, like another another Providence uh, personality, Ashish Jha at Brown University, have said that the Global South can't manufacture mRNA vaccines. They're too technically sophisticated and complex. Uh, the best we can do is some sort of global charity model. Um, but yeah, the, these these media sources and NGOs have identified factories that are capable of producing mRNA vaccines, over 100 of them throughout the world, that aren't being used for that. In some cases, they're waiting on development of their own mRNA vaccines. So they're just going to go unused for years. But one aspect here is that part of U.S. industrial policy is heavily subsidizing its biotech and pharmaceutical industries. And this entire uh, platform of mRNA vaccines, not just for COVID, but for any range of other uh, kinds of, of vaccine purposes, that's a very lucrative sector. And they don't want to just give this away to everyone. That's potentially hundreds of billions of dollars over the coming years. And they certainly don't want to, as we were discussing by DM, to transfer it to China, which has had a remarkably successful COVID zero program in terms of preventing deaths, but is using a Sinovax vaccine, which is inert disease and thus is less offers far less protection than mRNA. And so instead of China just producing its own mRNA vaccines using American-developed technology, which could happen tomorrow. China certainly has the technical and manufacturing capacity to make those vaccines. They're left with the inert disease vaccines, which offer way less protection, and trying to develop, reinvent the wheel by developing their own mRNA vaccine, because it's all intellectual property, industrial policy through the lens of the new Cold War with China. Yeah, and and we were talking about this before this interview. The coverage of China's COVID approach has, particularly from English language media and, and U.S. media, has just been framed in such a way that that every every success is actually a failure. Of yeah, it really it re really buries the lead, which is instead of uh, four thousand six hundred thirty six Chinese people being dead from COVID, which is around the number that are reported today. There would, if the, if China had the U.S.'s death rate, and I just got the statistic by multiplying the U.S. death rate by China's population, 3,571,400 Chinese people would be dead today instead. Like, that's the lead. Yeah. <laughs> or should be. Yeah. So you, you, have, you have this situation in China where they're, they're taking very maximalist action on non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, and, the, you know, there's legitimate debate to be had over, one, what their actual death numbers are. Is it fewer than 5,000? Is it something more than that? It's certainly very low. Um, <laughs> it's not 3.5 million. <laughs> they're, they're doing a lot more to prevent COVID than countries like South Korea or Vietnam or Australia now. Um, particularly in the last few months, uh, than some of these other countries that have death rates that are orders of magnitude lower than the U.S. So I think it's very safe to say that they have strongly suppressed COVID through non-pharmaceutical interventions. They've also had fewer options to work with because they haven't been able to rely on a very effective vaccine. The Sinopharm vaccine, I think, has 
when it was reported, 80% efficacy against severe disease versus something like 95% at the start for Pfizer Moderna vaccines. And there's also the sense, I think, that China's COVID-0 policy is just impossible to implement in a free society. And like you've said, there are plenty of debates to be had. Of course, it's reasonable that there's coverage of actual problems that emerge with China's lockdown and dissent among Chinese people about it. But again, it's a matter of burying that lead of the 3.5 million people and then reporting on the rest of it. But it's not just the coverage of China's COVID policy. I think in a way, almost China's successes have been framed as this authoritarian anomaly, and then, which then excuses the media from examining a vast array of countries who, with a variety of different political and economic systems, who have, as you just said, death rates that are orders of magnitude lower than the United States's, even if they're not as low as China. Because God forbid that we compare the United States to another country if that other country is much better at doing something than us and thus learn something from that comparison and change our behavior. Yeah, China has this this tool called central planning, which isn't in and of itself authoritarian unless you want to be like Friedrich Hayek and make that argument. Um, and one thing China was able to do early in the pandemic was test a population the size of New York City in a single week. Go through and say, okay, we're going to try to test everyone. There was, there was, you know, it wasn't a completely free choice. I think it was integrated into the social credit system, whether or not you you got a test. But what if you had at the time I was living in New York City, which was having quite quite a COVID problem itself. And I was thinking, what if only 50% of the population decided to participate in this and we could quarantine and isolate uh, people who tested positive? many of whom wouldn't know they're sick yet, uh, that, that would have gone a long way. To close out, what, what is your current theory as to how and when the pandemic will end, if we can even talk about any sort of neat ending? There are, there are two ways to think about this question. <laughs> One is about what does it mean to be in a pandemic versus not uh, in, in a social sense. There have been pandemics that have ended in the past, but the high levels of disease haven't necessarily ended. There, the pandemic ends when full normalization of social life and business practices return. There's some good historical work on this. So the, we've had a push. Um, I, I wrote back back in May, back in the the week where CDC said. No more masking for vaccinated people. Uh, with the, there was this incredible push to normalize and to take away public health measures. So, so on one level, there's what's going on socially. On the other level, there's what's going on epidemiologically. So, I think we all we all want COVID to go down to pretty low levels uh, in in society. There's no way of saying when exactly that will happen. Um, What's happening now is government is allowing large swaths of the population to be affected, infected by Omicron. That's going to produce immunity 
to Omicron, temporary immunity to Omicron. So it's going to make it so that massive waves can't spread again for the time being. What will happen if there's a new, even more transmissible variant? Hard to say. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, But it's really unpredictable at this point. We could be months away to getting down to lower levels of, of death and hospitalization. We could be, unfortunately, years away. There's no, there's no real way to predict this. Well, Justin Feldman, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Justin Feldman is a social epidemiologist and research fellow at the Harvard FXB Center. His research focuses on how social inequality harms public health, especially in the context of police violence and the COVID pandemic. I have linked to his comprehensive essay assessing Biden's COVID track record in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, hence capital is reckless of the health or length of life of the laborer, unless under compulsion from society. To the outcry as to the physical and mental degradation, the premature death, the torture of overwork, it answers, ought these to trouble us since they increase our profits? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.